introduce Pastor Jerry Owen. Owen, many of you already know Pastor Jerry. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Church, right over there. Jerry was converted reading the New Testament and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis in seventh grade. His faith broadened and flourished as a result of weekly worship and preaching here at Trinity Church, um, then Eastside Evangelical Fellowship. Jerry earned his BA in Classical Studies from U of I, M. Lit from uh, University of St. Andrews, and a GL from Greyfriars Ministerial Hall, which is a fun thing that Greyfriars people just made up. <laughs> he met Jenny, his wife-to-be, in 2003 at the beginning of his time at Greyfriars, which made the whole thing even more fun as Jerry said. After completing ministerial training at Greyfriars Hall, Jerry returned to Trinity Church in 2007 to serve as an associate pastor. In 2013, as an outgrowth of the desire to see the church grow and the Great Commission fulfilled, Jerry led a group to plant Emmanuel Church, now meeting right across the parking lot. So it's kind of like moving out of your bedroom and then into your parents' basement. But as Jerry would say, it's fun to watch. Jerry and Jenny have five kids who make for a constant adventure. Thanks for speaking to us today, Thanks. Pastor Owen. Great to be with you. I am talking this morning about dominion starting at home. So dominion starts at home, why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you equip us by the Holy Spirit to be faithful and courageous men in the time that we live. And we pray that we would uh, walk after our Savior Jesus and be manly like he is. Help us to take responsibility for the things that you've put in our lives. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a time, as you are aware, where people divorce their private lives from their public lives. We're trying to talk about doing the opposite here of not being a private Christian and a public secularist, a private man of God and a person at work that doesn't live like it. We're trying to put these things back together. We have heard our politicians say things like, well, those are just my private values. You know, yes, uh, we'll, have, we'll have Catholic politicians that will say, yeah, I'm, I'm privately pro-life in my church, but publicly that's not really my thing. Or they'll say like our president is Catholic, President Biden, and he'll say, yeah, those are my private things, but out here I, I support a woman's right. At the same time, it's become cliche in the business world to say, bring your whole self to work. Make sure you bring your whole self to work, right? So we have this, we have these, we're schizophrenic. Um, I think bring your whole self to work is a nod to, to integrity, to actually biblical living where you are the man at work that you, that you should be at home. That's how it should work. By, by bring your whole self to work, people mean be authentic, be vulnerable, be humble at work. Don't come to work and, and put on a false face. But I would ask, what if you are wretched at home? You know, what if you are selfish to your wife and kids? What if you, uh, if you don't have a wife and kids, what if it's just all about you and you live a selfish, self-centered life and, and you give in to pornography and all these things? Should you bring that whole chump to work, right? Probably not. If you did, what would happen? Obviously, who you are at home affects who you are at work, and it should. The Lord teaches us in his word, he teaches us to think of our homes as essential as, as an essential, as the, really the first founding place to take dominion. In the Bible, we, how we live at home, our relationship with our wives, our preparations to take a wife, if we haven't yet, it's good to see lots of young guys here, that is an essential part of our dominion, and so therefore dominion ought to start there. And that's why my talk is about dominion starts at home. 
So first, the Dominion mandate at home. The Dominion mandate includes a wife and kids. Remember from Genesis 1.28, then God blessed them. Genesis 1.28 is the Dominion mandate. And if you don't have that one marked in your mind, you want to. Genesis 1.28, then God blessed them. So the Dominion mandate is all about being blessed by God. It's this, it's this honor that God gives us as men who bear his image. What, were, what was God doing in the creation account? People have these, these uh, questions. What does it mean to bear God's image? Well, what has God been doing in the creation? He's been creating and naming. He creates things he names and, and he describes it as very good. And then he makes man in his image. The Greeks have labeled us as homo sapiens, thinking people, thinking creatures. That's not really what we are. Um, we, we do that, but we do that where, in Genesis, what God has been doing so far when he makes man is he has been creating and naming. And that's what we do. And that's part of what dominion is. Dominion is making stuff, taking dominion over the world and naming it, speaking about it appropriately. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam is the head of his wife and he looks out at this big place. He has already become one flesh with her because when they got married, God, God uh, put him into a deep sleep, took out the rib, the first pain, the first bloodshed in scripture, taking that rib out, fashioning this beautiful woman, brought her to the man, and the two were one flesh. Adam sees her, he's, the first words spoken in all of scripture, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because he was taken out, she, he, she was taken out a man. Uh, the man's first words are speaking the truth about her, honoring her, loving her, implicitly thanking God for this great gift. That was one of his first acts of dominion as she came to him. And he, he hears from God, now you are going to fill this place. You're going to have this overwhelmingly wonderful one flesh union with this woman. And out of that, out of that intensely pleasurable, wonderful experience, you are going to make people. And you're, the people that you make are going to make people, and they are going to turn this place with gold in the ground, with onyx, as, as uh, Pastor Hatcher was talking about. What, what's gold? You know, is that shiny? Is that lovely? You know who's going to like that stuff? This, one, this woman that you're in this one flesh union with. You're going to go dig it up, and you're going to like it and look at it, and you're going to make machines to rip it out of the earth, and then you're going to have to burn it and fashion it and do all the things that, that those guys do. And, uh, and then the, and you're going to make little pretty stuff to put on those little fingers of your, of your wife and your daughters and put them around their neck. And that's going to be part of dominion. All this is pre-fall. This is all good. You don't have to covet the gold. You don't have to kill somebody to get the gold. But you're still going to go dig it up and take dominion over it. We are still in the process of doing it. Adam is the head of his wife. And if he's going to fill the earth, he has to make babies with that woman. Right? Follow me closely. Pretty simple. He's got to be in one flesh union with her. If he's going to make babies, he has to be in one flesh union with her. He has to make love to her. And if he is going to do that, he is going to have to be nice to her at breakfast. Right? She's a woman. Um, and that's when sex begins, is at breakfast, is when you're nice to your wife, when you love her, when you wake up and you're kind to her, when you are le leading a consistent, joyful Christian life. And that's, that's really what we're talking about. You got to get dominion there in that relationship first. It starts at home. G the way Jesus is overcoming this world is through the growth and maturity of his bride, the church. Sometimes I think Calvinists, reform guys, we think... Uh, exclusively or can think exclusively in terms of 
uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and, and forget that those are the effects of that death, burial, and resurrection are applied through history. When Paul tells husbands how to love their wives, he talks about us cleansing our wives with the washing of the water by the word so that she is to be without spot or wrinkle. That's what Jesus is doing with his bride, and that is taking time over history. The bride today in 2023 is more beautiful than she was in 1023, well, a millennia ago. Jesus is maturing the church over time. We're getting bigger. That's part of it. We're over 2 billion people. But we are also getting more mature and, by God's grace, more faithful. So we know that there are faithless churches. We know that uh, John wrote to the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. And some of those churches, those churches had different struggles. And a couple of them were in danger of losing their lampstand, of being cut out. So you can have individual congregations. You can have regions of churches that are being unfaithful. But overall, the bride of Christ is alive and well. Um, the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against her. We are battering down the gates of hell. That's what we are doing. And that is a picture of the marriage of Christ and the church. The reason why the church is central is because of what Jesus is doing with his bride. And so therefore, he is showing us how to, be, how to lead our wives to repentance, how to be patient, how to sacrifice ourselves, and to sacrifice ourselves. He died on the cross, but Jesus listens to you today, right? You pray to the Father through him. He's interceding for you at the right hand of the Father. All that is going on now, and that is our example as men to imitate him in what he is doing. That's what a husband must do. Solomon calls his bride a garden enclosed, is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Every garden has a gardener. Every wife has a husband. So the dominion mandate starts at home. It starts with, that's the filling part, and we're going to talk about the dominion part. Um, Adam Eve was supposed to be Adam's helper. Adam couldn't fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. But neither could he do effectively the rest of the work that God gave him. He looked at all the animals, two by two they were coming to him, and he noticed that this male uh, with similar body parts as he had uh, has a female. And together they're going to live the animal life. They're going to have dens and they're going to do all the things that animals do. And that's part of, part of growing in wisdom is looking at the, at the natural kingdom and seeing seeing the fallen parts of it, but also seeing the good parts of it. Go to the ant, you sluggard. We guys are tempted to be lazy, and you walk outside, and you have an ant problem at your house or at your apartment, and you're supposed to figure it out that they're hustling all the time, and you are sleeping until 11 o'clock. Well, get up and go to the ant. You can look around at the, at the insect kingdom and figure out that you're supposed to be taking dominion and that God built these tiny little things that you know, you're supposed to, like, at some point in your life, be able to bench your body weight, right? Or at least try to. Well, they bench, I don't know, how much do they bench? They bench like 10 times their body weight. It's very impressive. We're supposed to learn from these things, okay? Um, that's not the point of dominion, is to bench a lot of stuff. But you, but you get my point, right? We're supposed to be hustling. Many Christian men think of women as essential to the fruitful and multiplying, but not to the rest of their work. And this is because they're chumps. This is because we learn this kind of misogyny uh, from our father, Adam, uh, where we do despise women and we think um, she's a baby maker. This is where the fools who think that women don't need the same education that men do, that women don't need to be equipped, they don't get at all the church, and they don't get what Jesus is doing with the church, and they don't get the way Jesus describes uh, his bride or our brides individually. Adam lacked 
what Adam lacked, uh, God said it was not good in Genesis 2.18. What he needed was a suitable or comparable helper. She would help him in everything, supporting his leadership and taking dominion over the earth. We know that Jesus told us in his high priestly prayer in John, he says that when I go, the, the helper is going to come. You're going to have the helper. The Holy Spirit's going to help you do the things you can't do while I'm here. He needed to be a resurrected, glorified man at the right hand of the Father to send the Spirit upon us to help us live out the Christian life so that we didn't live like men in the Old Covenant. What did men in the Old Covenant do? You know, you turn the page and there's an apostasy. You turn the page and they are taking multiple wives. You turn the page, so, so there's, there's repentance and reformation, revival, and then there is a decline, there is judgment, there is exile. And the point of the New Covenant is that that's not supposed to happen anymore, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us. Uh, women are like this in a way. The Holy Spirit hovers over waters of the, of the formless and void creation in Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit comes as the finisher, the glorifier, the completer of the Father's work. He speaks the Word. The Word is the Son. The Spirit goes out and applies the Word. So the Spirit's there hovering over the waters. They are formless and void at the beginning of Genesis, and then God starts to finish them, and, and it's the Holy Spirit who does that. So, in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, uh, Paul says that men are the glory of God and women are the glory of the man. Men are the glory of God. Women are the glory of the glory. Women finish it. Men bring raw materials. Women take those raw materials and they make a house that's nice to live in, right? You go into a men's fraternity or a men's dorm and you can tell that no woman had any part in this because it's not nice to be in. Um, it doesn't smell nice. It doesn't look nice either, really. It's like, um, and, and you need a woman. You know, you need a woman to make a home. That's what women do. They finish. They bring glory. And that is part of dominion. Wives who are loved faithfully by their husbands are going to build civilization. They're going to take raw materials provided to them and not just, uh, not just to make the home flourish. But we also see in Proverbs 31, she reaches out to the poor. She buys a field. She plants a vineyard in it. Um, so she has all kinds of aspirations that go far beyond the home. She's faithful first in the home, but because she's been equipped and honored and because she's the glory of her husband, she goes out and does those things too. So a man should be treating her, loving her, thinking of her that way, and he's going to have to get dominion in that relationship. So, if, so that means he has to deal with sin. A man should get a wife. He should prepare to be chased now in order to get a wife, to be the kind of person that a person that he wants to marry would want to marry. And, and once he gets her, he needs to love her and he needs to get dominion over sin in his marriage. Dominion starts at home. Dominion starts in your marriage. And dominion means getting dominion over the rampaging generational effects, otherwise effects, of sin. Remember what sin did in the garden to Adam and Eve. When sin entered the world, it happened because a man sat there and watched his wife have a conversation with this serpent, this seraphim, uh, Satan, taking on an incarnation there in the garden, serpent. And he watched his wife have this conversation with her, and he did nothing about it. 
He was the first abdicator, and he was abdicating his dominion. Why? Because his wife was part of his garden. Why? Because his wife was given to him to help him be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over it. And the, and the effects of the fall, we know, were thorns and thistles, sweat from his brow, everything's going to be hard, she's going to have pain in, in childbearing, everything was screwed up as a part of him not getting dominion in this relationship, not protecting his wife. We're told in Genesis 3-6 that he was with her while she ate. So she says, I gave, I gave the fruit to my husband who was with me. That means she, he was there when she ate. And like a guy, when God asked him what happened, Adam said, it was the woman that you gave me to be with me. She gave me of the, of the fruit. So God blames her, and he blames really God through her. Uh, this didn't really happen on my watch. This really happened on your watch because you gave me this lousy woman, and, and here I am. Scripture tells us that she was deceived, that she actually was tricked by the serpent. It doesn't tell us about Adam. It says Adam was responsible. We don't, there's no reason to think that Adam was tricked. Adam was with her. He watched her being tricked, and then she ate, and he did nothing about it. He watched her, I think, as an experiment to see, yeah, it does, that, that fruit looks good, and she's grabbing and eating it, and I'm not going to step in and fight that dragon. Maybe he was, regardless, he was a coward. Maybe he was, he was notably scared, but he was the first um, passive man, the first man who refused to do his job in his relationship, and he watched the whole thing fall apart. We... We, he, didn't, he didn't fight the dragon, and then he didn't step up and offer himself in place of the woman. She ate. At that point, he should have said, this happened on my watch. You gave her to me to be my helper, uh, God, and, and I want to offer my life in place of, of, of hers. We had to wait for the second Adam to do that, right? He didn't do that. And apart from God's saving grace and wisdom through the Holy Spirit, we still don't do that. We kind of go... Um, the man who is not taking dominion goes, you know, these are kind of her issues, and I have my issues over here, um, and I'm kind of taking care of those, right? A good, usually a, a Christian husband will assume that he's doing a good job if he's taking care of himself, instead of thinking of, no, this is part of my dominion. It starts at home. It starts in my relationship with my wife. It starts in my relationship with my children. Adam showed us how to do this all wrong. So the, so the consequence of the fall on a human level, was spiritual conflict and separation between husband and wife. Your wife is your closest neighbor. Your wife is your rib restored to you. Your wife is, is your companion, your, your wife by covenant. And so therefore, she is meant to help you be fruitful as you take dominion, and you have to have an understanding with her on how to confess sin, how for her to grant forgiveness, how she is to seek forgiveness for sins against you, and you are to grant forgiveness, and this is to happen on a regular, um, humble, quick practice. This is supposed to happen easily and quickly, and if you don't have that established with your wife, you have to get dominion over sin in your home because it is screwing things up, and it'll only get worse uh, over time, and there will be all kinds of dislocations and are dislocations. Husbands and wives need to make sure they are keeping short accounts with God, confessing sins, and to one another, and sin lurks at the door. It's, 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 it will have dominion over us like it did over Cain if we do not get dominion over it. She has to be secure in your love, knowing that you're glad to heaven that you married her, 
So you have to be pouring upon her security, love, you have to provide for her, you have to protect her. She has to know that if she's having a stupid conversation with, that, with, with whatever manifestation the serpent makes, that you're gonna be there to say something and not be there to watch, like the old Adam, to see how it goes, right? That's what she has to know. And you have to have that relationship of confessing sin and, being, and forgiving. And you have to model that for her so that she can imitate you. And then you have to have the courage to hold her accountable to do so. Many husbands fail to take dominion because she is more verbal than he is. She's, frankly, in some ways, more spiritually astute. And so he just, he just backs off and kind of lets things happen in the marriage. Whereas what he needs to do is step up and be willing to have a conflict and say, no, this is what happened. And she says, no, here's what happened, here's what happened, and here's what happened. And eventually he says, fine, that's what happens. And he lies to her for the sake of peace. And he feels good about it because, well, I've got this weird tension. It's been going for three days. And what I need to do is, is tell my wife what she thinks she needs to hear in order for it to go away. And then I can sort it out somewhere else. But that's, that's not good husbandry. That's not good dominion. Never lie to your wife for the sake of a false peace. It's not true peace, right? Because it's built on a lie. You have to speak the truth in love and hold the line so that you stay in fellowship with her and get dominion over, over sins. If you should know if your wife is keeping short accounts with God, you should know if she is. You should know right now. Um, and, if, and if you don't, you should plan on checking in. How are you doing? Are you getting time in your Bible? Are you saying your prayers? You should know if, if something is messing with your wife's soul, right? You should be loving her as Christ loved the church. And of course, this means that you must be doing so yourself. And that's where we fall short oftentimes. We're not doing it. We're not reading the Bible. We're not getting dominion over our own lives. Well, how, you know, then we are at some sense walking hypocrites and therefore it's hard for us to, it's impossible really for us to give away what we don't have as was already said. So you must confess your sins against her, show her how to repent, and then teach her how to respectfully challenge you. Get that? You must confess your sins against her and, and, and lead her to forgive you. And then you must teach her and lead her in doing the same thing. It's a two-way street, but it's a two-way street that as husband, you are responsible to maintain, to do everything you can to make sure that it works. We, um, obviously, in saying that, I know that I have no power over my wife's soul. I have no levers I can pull. I have no control. And I, I don't have, by God's grace, I don't have any desire to be a control freak and to know everything. What, what I want to do is be like Job, who offers sacrifices in the morning for his children, thinking I know my kids are going <clears> to <throat> have a party later. These are adult kids out of his house, really. And I know they're going to celebrate and feast. And in case they curse God or, or blaspheme him or, or sin against him in any way, God... Um, he offers sacrifices, which, are, are go with, which go with prayer in the Old Covenant, for his kids. I want to intercede on behalf of my wife, on behalf of my kids, so that God would bless them and so that I would have dominion. Andrew told us, rightly, to be battle-ready. And if you are not prayed up and you are not confessed up and you don't have dominion in this area, then you are not battle-ready. You are battle-compromised. And the main thing that you need, which is grace and uh, God's favor and hand of goodness upon you, uh, that's what you need to go out there and stand in the workplace, and you need your wife to be standing behind and with you, and you need your children to be supporting you. Um, you can't be compromised in that way.
Peter says that if you don't dwell with your wife with understanding, your prayers will be hindered. 1 Peter 3, 7. You can't pray rightly if this part isn't right. If you're preparing to be married, you better be saying your prayers. If you're preparing to be married, you gotta be repenting daily of your lusts. You gotta watch your thought life and remember that God hears every thought. You've gotta be looking for a covenant woman and being content until it's time to take one. We have to take similar dominion over our, our children. We have to take dominion for these lives that God has entrusted to us. I was giving a talk uh, on this recently at a pastor's conference saying that um, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, bishops are responsible to have children who are faithful. Titus uses the word faithful. Faithful means full of faith. It's really not that complicated. Um, Paul, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says they should be um, submissive. They should be gladly reverent, basically. Um, and he said, you know, Jerry, it's impossible because my kids go over there and they talk to those kids over there and they're not Christians and they come back with all this junk. They come in the door and then they go over here to school. Um, and he says, you know, my daughter doesn't want to even go to this great school that we have. Um, and I said, uh, why? You know, why doesn't she want to go? I mean, this is a longer interchange, but I said, why? What's the deal? He says, I don't know. I don't know. And this guy's an elder. Um, and I said, hey, well, that's like your whole job is to know. <laughs> You're supposed to know what your kid's issues are. Like, is it, does she think, is someone mean to her at the school? Does she not think she's smart enough? Does she think she's fat? Like, what, what, what's wrong with the situation? That is your job to know. As husbands, as fathers, <clears throat> we should know the spiritual state of our, our uh, kids, our flocks, and we should make sure um, we know what, where the weeds are in the garden and be seeking to God's grace, seeking God's favor, praying to him and helping those who are in our households. When this requires uh, us to know our, our children and their frame at every age and to be ministering to them. What are your kids' questions and doubts? What are they struggling with right now at their age? Um, do they have a phone? Who are they talking to on the phone? Who do they text? What's the messaging? Are they on apps? What's going on on the, on the apps, right? Whatever they're doing, we have to be talking to them about knowing what's going on so that we can help them navigate those things faithfully. Obviously, phones are a gateway to destruction with all the garbage uh, on the internet. There's those things. But, but let's say we have those things are roughly under control, which Christian, diligent Christian men are usually have kind of a bead on that. How about the relationships? Like the friendships that are being built, what are they like? Um, what's going on? Are we learning to be faithful friends? Are we wasting endless time having inane texting conversations? What is, what is going on in that area? We have to get dominion over it, and we have to be discipling our children those ways. You can't be a dad who concludes, what does that have to do with me? At the beginning of the, at the book of Kings, of the book of Kings, we get this, uh, talking about David and Adonijah, right? Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. This is right. So how to be a king, how to be a great man, how to be a royal son of our God, the king. It says this at the beginning of Kings. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he, pre he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father, that's the great King David, right? The man for God's heart. And his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you so done? He was also very good looking. His mother had, had borne him after Absalom. 
1 Kings 1, 5 through 6. So this is a good-looking kid. He's got persuasive words. He's obviously got great ability. He's David's son. And never at any time did David said, you can't do that. Never did David say, son, you're way out of your league. Son, you need to be humble first. Um, that tells us something about how the book of Kings is going to go and how David, who discipled some of his sons, didn't disciple other ones. We need to be doing that. Lastly here, in conclusion, I want to mention a few things about maturity. <clears throat> Dominion requires planning for new stages and opportunities. So as, as we are... Uh, you know, you don't parent for like the first four years. You, you get dominion over your house and you take responsibility for your house until you're dead. You spend your last 20 years, if God gives you a good long life, you spend your last years um, uh, imparting wisdom to your adult children, to Lord willing, your grandchildren, um, to serving God's flock, to continuing to love your wife until you breathe your last and you're done. So you don't retire from life or discipleship. You might, because we're rich Americans, you might get... 20 or 30 years of retirement from your career, but that's time you're to spend being fruitful, still pursuing dominion. I think it's Psalm 90 that says, um, God's faithful old people are still green in old age. They're bearing fruit in old age. And so we should be guiding our children through all the different phases of growth and matching rewards to ability and maturity. There are things that are popular in some Christian circles, kind of Christian versions of bar and bat mitzvahs, Bar means son, bot means daughter, mitzvah means law. So when you're 13, you have a bar, bot, mitzvah. I used to go to a lot of these things growing up in Bellevue when all my Jewish buddies at school would have their, these crazy big parties. And it's like, good job. Now that you're 13, we'll have a big dance and you'll get tons of stuff. And here's a limo to go be immoral with your friends. It'll be great, even though you're 13. Well, there's a Christian version of that, not the immoral part, but where, where um, parents want to go, son, now you're an adult. And this switch is flipped and I'm gonna invite some buddies we're all gonna go around the fire and tell you you're a man and give you advice nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't become pseudo sacramental but personally I like real-life maturation experience son now you're this age and I'm confident that you are ready are ready to try handling this gun um, and here's how to use the gun here's the universal firearm safety rules um, you're 16 years old and you can get a license and, and you've earned some money, so get a car and be faithful with it, be a good steward of it. And here's how you should do that and, and I'm gonna, I'm, you're gonna do it and I'm gonna guide you. You know, we have real life things that people do in our culture that young adults become. And I like using those things to honor age, honor ability, bestow responsibility. Um, and again, nothing wrong with doing things that are outside of, of, of these these actual societal steps that we take, but I think we should be training our children to take dominion in real practical ways. This means also spending money on them. They will, you will need to help provide. They will earn things as well, but you know, buying your daughter's um, devices and craft things and things like that, that that cost money, but that are tools for them to develop their skills. Um, teaching your son and buying tools for him so that he can get some practical dominion and learn how to work with his hands with some skill. And, and different kids will have different interests, but real world dominion where they are learning. I mean, Andrew's going to talk to us about starting businesses on the side. And he says, well, if, you, if, you, if all you have is hobbies, you should think about some kind of avocation, some kind of side hustle. Well, that starts with where your interests are, where your abilities are. And we want to be equipping our young people to be doing that. Here's a job you can go apply for. Here is a 
you know, here's a sip of wine at the Sabbath table. It's a little bigger sip now that you're 15 and not, and not nine anymore. Here is a, uh, what's your curfew? You know, you're 16 years old. Um, you should be deciding when you're going to come home, and you, are, and you should make a decision. It shouldn't be like, well, I'll be home when I'm home. That's not going to cut it. But what, what is your new curfew? And you get to decide. Different kids, different stages of maturity, different households, all these things are going to vary. But you should be looking for how to bestow honor, bestow responsibility upon your aging kids. We should be investing in them in every way um, and equipping them to take dominion over the earth. That takes time and wisdom to do it. But obviously this is just scratching the surface, but dominion starts at home. How are you getting dominion over yourself? And then how are you getting dominion over this household that God has placed upon you? Pray on it. That's it. Thanks very much.